Well, thanks for such uh, enthusiastic singing. It's always encouraging to sing with other believers. It's especially encouraging to sing with a bunch of men. I, 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 look, I love my wife. I'm a pastor. I love the women in our church. They're singing their gifts, but there's something, I don't know. I like singing with a bunch of guys. How's that? So thankful. Well, it is a joy to be here. Uh, I'm, I was shocked to hear... To do the math, Dave, that this is the 13th Ironman because that was the first year I came to Mission Road was, I think, the first year we did. I've been there 13 years, and uh, it was just a few of us rattling around in here, and now the Lord has built this into a really a, a fulcrum where we get to gather yearly. Thank you for your vision for doing uh, the Ironman Summit, Iron Men Summit. Can we thank Dave for his vision for having this, this uh, <laughs> conference? <clears throat> I, um, I've learned a few things, though, over the years about Flint Hills, and that is that every church has a unique uh, profile of gifts and gifting. Some churches have a lot of good teachers. Some good, have a lot who are, who are uh, good at serving and, and on and on. I have never, I've never seen a church more supplied with people with the spiritual gift of food more than Flint Hills. You guys know how to eat. I mean, there is a theology, and it's a good one, in the Bible of feasting. And I feel like every year at the Ironman Summit, we, we feast together. Um, if you don't, how many of this is your first time? Oh, brothers. One, one syllable, three letter word pie. <laughs> Just wait till lunch. I'm, a, I, I'm getting ahead. It, it, is, it is pie. Yeah, it's a. There's a spiritual gift of pie, too, and there are many people who have it. Did you make any pies for today? Not you personally. Okay, just just checking on that. So grateful for this conference. Just thankful for the opportunity to to be here to to share with you. This is a a highlight uh, just to rekindle the things that we are passionate about. And I love the vision for having this be about the church let me just give you a personal testimony. I, I've been in ministry some 43 years, and um, I started when I was six, so that's, uh, don't do the math. Um, and I, I, I found that throughout my ministry, there are certain theological constructs, topics that, that capture your attention from season to season. You know, sometimes I think if I look back over my, my, uh, my passion for the passion and learning theology and ministry, sometimes my favorite topic might have been the sovereignty of God. Other times it was the compassion of God. Other times it was, it was um, uh, pneumatology and understanding how the Spirit of God uh, motivates and, and, and animates the Christian life. And different things kind of come and go, and it's almost whatever you're reading or whatever you've been talking about becomes your favorite theological subject. But I've learned, I think, over the last decade and a half, especially since coming to Mission Road, that I am convinced, and Dave actually proved it by reading a verse a minute ago, that perhaps the most important, now track with me for a second, the most important integrating theological thought anyone can have is your doctrine of the church, your ecclesiology. And there's a reason for that. Because in that passage in 1 Timothy 3 that that they read to us, the church is the pillar or buttress and support of truth. In other words, without the church, truth is 
squishy, it's sloppy, it's nebulous. The church is to be the guardian of the church and the guardians for our souls on behalf of the Lord. Church is important. And understanding the church is critically important, but I find that so many people, I think of even my own upbringing, go to church without thinking about church. They have a thought about the church without understanding it. On a cold morning in February of 2010, Richard Code left a note on his landlady's door. It said this, If I'm not back by Monday, please call the authorities. Along with the note was a set of GPS coordinates and a list of supplies that he had taken with him. However, as professional as that sounds, as smart as it sounds that he did that, don't be fooled into thinking that Mr. Code was a survival expert. In the weeks and months leading up to this midwinter uh, little uh, hike he took into the wilderness of Canada, Mr. Code had begun to watch a new cable television show called Survivor Man. And the premise of the show is simple. Perhaps you've seen it. Survivor Man heads out into the wilderness to demonstrate that being knowledgeable and prepared can actually save your life. Mr. Code was a big fan of Survivor Man. He set out that morning. He felt certain he could brave the elements, applying what he'd learned from the show. Four days later, they found his body recovered by helicopter in the area near the coordinates that he had left. No longer accessible by foot, thanks to a blanket of heavy snowfall and drifts that had blocked any way to get to the valley in which he had died. His solar blanket did not prove adequate enough To keep him warm, he was unable to start a fire with the wet timber, and so he succumbed to hypothermia. Richard Code was an enthusiast with very little experience and almost no training. He set out to emulate his hero, Survivor Man. He had all the advantages of the years of instruction to do his show, but Richard Code had just watched a few shows. It's a tragic story, ends horribly, but I think it highlights a basic principle that knowing about something, liking something, being familiar with something, doesn't mean you know intimately what that something is and how it functions. Seeing it done is a world away from doing it. Enthusiasm only gets you so far. And a thin emulation of Christianness is not the same as worshiping and walking with the Lord himself. And that especially comes to bear on our understanding and interaction with the church. I I have done, the the last I stopped, I stopped counting a long time ago. I think I've done north of 350 weddings in in my ministry. Um, There was a time when I was a college pastor in California that I, I remember one weekend I did three weddings in one day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one in the evening. You better write the names down because that you can get in a lot of trouble marrying someone to the wrong person if you don't. <clears throat> but in doing a lot of weddings, you think a lot about marriage. And in thinking a lot about marriage, as a pastor, you want to say, what does God's word say about marriage? You say, what does that have to do with the church? Well, I've been teaching through Ephesians. Um, in fact, I'm, this week will be... I think I have four sermons left in Ephesians. This will be the 103rd or 4th 
a sermon. It's kind of sad because people who've been coming to our church over the last few years, don't, they don't say, when did you come to, to the church? They say, what chapter of Ephesians did you come in? It's a little bit embarrassing. Um, but when we went through chapter 5, as you know, uh, 22 to 33 on, on marriage, it is an incredible passage, and it's become really the anchor of all of the weddings that I, I have the privilege of, of, of being the officiant over. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, if you know that chapter, you know this well, gives an analogy. And this is the only, think about this, it's the only reciprocating analogy in the New Testament. You say, what is that? Usually when you say, when you give an illustration, you say, X illustrates Y. And it's pretty simple. This illustration doesn't do that. X illustrates Y and Y illustrates X. And the X and the Y are husband and wife and Christ and the church. In fact, Paul is bouncing. It's tempting to go to that passage, but we, we don't have time. Paul actually is talking about marriage, and then he's talking about the church. Then he talks about marriage again, then the church. Then he says, no, no, I'm actually talking about the church. Nevertheless, let every man love his wife. He just bounces back and forth because they are so intricately tied theologically and etymologically as well as their ontology, what they actually are. Why is that important? I love my wife. Kim and I have been married 30 years this year. And uh, she's my best friend. I enjoy her more than any other human on the planet. Uh, We love doing things together. We went to search for a... went shopping for a mattress last night. Do you know how awkward that is? I mean, it is weird. There's a bunch of people there, and you're laying there going, how does this feel? How does this feel? And then the guy said, oh, roll around and turn over. And I'm like, dude, just walk away and look at something else. That one looks like it fits you well. You're really level. What are you looking at? Anyway, um, we just love spending time together. But if you were to tell me, Rick, I like you. You're my friend. We can hang out together. But I really, I really don't. I really don't enjoy Kim. I don't like your wife much at all. In fact, I can, I can take you without, without her. We wouldn't be friends anymore. I would be profoundly and rightly offended. And yet, if we've heard, you've probably known so many people who say, Oh, I love Christ, but not the church. I mean, here's a strange question. This, will, this is a great question for ordination, guys. Is Jesus, or has Jesus ever been married? And you'll hear, no, he hasn't. Well, be careful. Revelation says, behold, the wife of the Lamb. Ephesians 5 says that Christ's bride is what? The church. You cannot, let's say it as clear as possible, you cannot No matter what you say, no matter how you act, a person cannot say that they have a love and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ without having a love and an intimate relationship with his bride, the church. It's like saying, I love you, but I don't love your wife. What I want to do this morning, just as a way of introduction to our theme today, is to talk about loving Christ Because we love his church and loving the church because we love Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. 
Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read you a passage, and then we'll uh, dissect it a little bit and draw some principles, okay? Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul's talking about our old life and our new life, the way we were, the way we are, the way we used to be, the way we're supposed to be. Verse 17. So I say this, Ephesians 4, 17, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Stop right there. Walking, being ambulatory, moving from one place to another by means of walking was Paul's metaphor all throughout the New Testament of living. Walking means living. So when you see walk, that means life. It's interesting that he talks about walking or living being so intricately connected to thinking. You are as you think. Proverbs will reiterate over and over and over. Look at all these thinking words. So I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Live no longer as an unbeliever in the futility of their what? Mind. Being darkened in their where? Understanding. Excluded from the life because of the ignorance. Look at all these knowledge words that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. That's another knowledge base. My old professor, Dr. Zimmick, used to say that's the mission control of your life. Your heart is. They become calloused, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him... I've been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to this former life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and that you be renewed where? In the spirit of your thinking, your mind, and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God. It's being created in Christ Jesus, created in righteousness rather, and in holiness of the truth. You ever had a, an experience as a believer where, and maybe I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself here, but this happens to me more times than, than I, I would anticipate. You read a passage and something jumps off the page and you almost want to say, when did God put that in there? I have read this hundreds of times and I never saw that. That happens to me so often. I think it's just because of the richness and the depth of the Word of God. That happened to me. That tackled me in this passage. And it ought to tackle us. He talks about having been renewed, having been a slave to our old self, verses 17 and 19. And then he says this. And you would expect him to say, but you did not learn to live that way, this way, learn to, to act this way. He says, you did not learn Christ. In this way. What I want to draw our attention to this morning is the curriculum of Christianity. And the curriculum of Christianity is the person of Christ. You did not learn Christ in this way. That's the fulcrum that changes our lives, is learning Christ. Let me give you two aims. If you want to have an outline to follow, two aims of the curriculum of Christianity, or you could say the curriculum of the church. 
And remember, this is just foundation for everything we're going to be studying today. Two aims of the curriculum of Christianity. Two aims of the curriculum of the church, in other words. The first is in verse 20. A decisive transformation from the past. Christianity involves change. A decisive transformation from the past. It's in the two little words in verse 20. But you... Now, the but you is measured against verses 17 to 19, which was all of that stack of noetic thinking terms of this is the way you used to be based on what you thought, but you. You're different now than you used to be, and how you used to be is you were controlled by ungodly, unbiblical thinking. But you, that's not the way you learn Christ. Now, just for for a second, listen again. With that as an introduction, verse 17, don't, don't, don't misunderstand that I'm giving you my opinion. I, I'm, I'm affirming with the Lord that you live, walk no longer as unbelievers, as Gentiles walk. Can we just begin by the basic, simple premise that Christianity involves massive, radical life change when you come into relationship with Christ? Don't live the way you used to. Don't walk like the Gentiles. As a believer, you don't live like you used to as an unbeliever. And he gives us a description in the futility of their minds. They didn't think the right way. Paul's going to reiterate this in chapter 6 when he, he talks about putting on the full armor of God. All of those pieces of armor have to do with something that you think. The sword of the Spirit is what we fight the enemy with. So the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is what we fight the enemy. What's his sword? He's the father of lies. So he's trying to lie. So in every battle, the first thing you want to do is knock the enemy's uh, um, weapon out of his hand. What's our weapon? The Word of God. What do you think Satan's trying to do, 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 do to you right in this moment? Knock the word of God and his power out of your thinking, out of your mind. What is, what is his weapon we're trying to knock out of his hand? Lies. Deceit. We just read the lusts of lies, the lusts of deceit. Being darkened in their understanding. The unbelieving mindset is dark. It's sinful. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. There's back to the word of God. Ignorance of the Word of God leads to satanic, demonic influence and a life headed for hell. Hardness of their heart, callousness, stiff arm in God's face we're all born with, and they become callous, unresponsive to the truth. Um, I don't know if we have any guitar players. I'm, I'm a guitar wannabe player, and I play every... 10 or 12 months. And when I play, it, it's, it's great for about 30 seconds. And then it's like, Ow, ouch, ouch, why am I doing this? And that's because every guitar player knows that you have to build up calluses so it doesn't hurt. Well, that means you're unresponsive to the pain of that pressure. This is callous and heart to the truth. Given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind, every category of impurity with Greediness. Paul says, that's the way you were, but you, un- unlike that, be different. 
And it's all coming from your mind. Verse 22, in reference to this former manner of life, lay it aside. Lay aside that life. It's being corrupted in accordance with, this is Satan's attack, lies, the lust, the strong desires of lies, of deceit. Every sin lies to us and tells us it will bring us pleasure and happiness that lasts, and it never does. A simple contrast here, this but you, calls for a decisive transformation of the past, from the past, when a person believes and receives the gospel. John Calvin says it like this. He whose life differs not from that of unbelievers has learned nothing of Christ. For the knowledge of Christ cannot be separated from the mortification of the flesh, end quote. Walter Layfield says, the teaching is, in summary, that there should be a radical difference between pre- and post-conversion character. There are three verbs that depend on were taught, put off, made new, and to put on. The imagery of the old clothing is taken off and to be discarded and replaced with what was new was common in ancient writings. You know it well. 2 Corinthians 5 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. So that's all in that little phrase, but you. But you. A decisive transformation from the past. That's the foundation of the curriculum for Christianity. You're going you're gonna to change. This is not like we did in a lot of our high school and college classes where you study for a test, you pass the test, and then you forgot what was on the test, right? This is studying and learning for transformation, which brings us to number two. Two aims for the curriculum of the church, the curriculum of Christianity. The first is a decisive transformation from the past. The second is this, and this is where we're going to dive in. A personal engagement with Christ. A personal engagement with Christ. But you... In contrast to your old way of thinking, in your old way of living, you did not learn Christ in this way. First thing to notice is the uniqueness of what Paul's saying and how he is saying it. Peter O'Brien, Greek scholar, says this. This first formulation, you did not learn Christ in this way, is without parallel. The phrase to learn a person appears nowhere else in the Greek Bible, and to date, it has not been traced to any pre-biblical document, end quote. Paul is unique in saying that the way that you learn to be different is you learn a person. No one ever said that before. You'd expect a a helping verb uh, or participle like, but you did not learn to follow Christ in this way. He doesn't say that. You did not learn to serve Christ in this way. He doesn't say that. You did not learn to worship Christ in this way. He doesn't say that. Or even you did not learn to believe in Christ. He doesn't say that. You did not learn Christ in this way. Reminds us of Philippians 1.21, which is terrible grammar in Greek and in English. Terrible grammar and really good theology. He goes, but... For me, to live is Christ and to die is again. Have you noticed that that's not very good English? I mean, I, I love my wife. I told you that. Can you imagine if I said, hey, for to me to live is Kim? You would go, that's weird. 
What, what does that even mean to live as Kim? What does it mean to live as Christ and to die as gain? Or what he wrote to the Colossians. Therefore, chapter 3, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Our curriculum is a person. It's Christ. Paul parallels this in Colossians 2, verse 6, when he says, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk, so live in Him. Jesus himself was the subject of apostolic preaching and the subject of apostolic teaching. This is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Just let me give you a quick tour. Don't try to turn here. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. Our message is a man. It's our philosophy as a person. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is preached, 2 Corinthians 1, 9, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Christ Jesus is who we preach as Lord, Acts 5, 42. Every day, night in temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In Colossians 1, 28, we proclaim Him. The content of Paul's message was the person of Jesus from the beginning to the end. It's just easy, I think, for us to think outside that box, to not think accurately about this. And I think Satan loves this. Remember, he deceives us. He wants us to think that Christianity is behavior modification. It's doing better. It's trying harder. It's being gooder. We think it's a moral conquest of, of badness. And it's easy to think that. No, Christianity is... Christ. Oh man, can I just can I just put the fear of God in our hearts that he intends to? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that there are some people who miss this and it is the eternally significant decision that they make to miss it. Some people will get all the way to the judgment deceived. They'll get right to the portals of heaven and they'll say, Lord, Lord. They call him Lord twice. In your name, didn't we cast out demons and perform many miracles and do signs and wonders? Look at all the things we did, how active we were. Jesus will look at them and say, yeah, you're pretty busy, but depart from me because you never knew me. It's kind of like that Richard Code dude. He knew a lot about what he wanted to know a lot about, but he didn't know the right things, and he didn't know enough. Christianity is Christ. Hebrews 12 
Since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Jesus is our message. He is who we proclaim as opposed to what we might proclaim. Jesus does not simply provide salvation, friends. Jesus is salvation. And if we don't communicate the right message, we will assimilate the wrong allegiance. The people who share, we share Christ with should be drawn to Jesus more than to us. To Jesus more than to the Christian way of living. So how can we practically equip ourselves to love the bridegroom so that we love his bride, the church? Well, I mean, it's not really complicated. We learn and study and memorize dimensions of his deity. Can you, I mean, get that knock on the door and we've all had it. Some guys come in, they want to talk to you about Jesus and John chapter 1 and that Jesus was a God and not the God. And I've kind of changed my strategy with the Jehovah's Witnesses where they, I used to just like not, not uh, no soliciting, don't come into my door. Now I love it. I want them to stay at my house as long as I can so they're not going to my neighbors. And then I get convicted because I should be going to my neighbor. But anyway, uh, so... As long as I can keep them there, uh, kept them in my driveway just a, a few weeks ago with uh, my son. I was getting out of the car, and they were walking up the, the door, and so we were talking about that. And, um, it, was, it was talking about the Lord, and um, they misunderstand who he is. And Paul says, if you preach another Jesus, you're preaching a damnable heresy. And there are other Jesuses. There are other Jesuses. Do you, can you defend his deity? Can you defend his humanity? That he was the man, Christ Jesus. Do you understand his character, his claims, his teaching, his miracle? Are you acquainted with his sufferings, his death? Do you believe? (laughs) Do you believe in his resurrection? Paul actually goes so far, the Corinthians is saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you cannot be saved. You must believe that he not only died for our sins, but he rose again. The response, his responses to life, his responses to death, his grace, his influence, his virgin conception, his all-satisfying presence. His good news is about him and through him and to him. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but every person that you and I ever get to know, the better we get to know them, the more flaws we see. It's only Jesus Christ. The better you get to know him, the more perfect you see him to be. Okay, give me a test. Ready? Don't, don't say it out loud. What is eternal 
life. Now, if you're smart, and you are, you probably say eternal life. That's easy. Adjective, noun. Eternal, forever, life, living. Living forever. And you would be partly right. Just not biblically right. Jesus defined eternal life, and he said this, John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Drum roll. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus doesn't just provide eternal life of living forever. He actually defines himself as eternal life. That relationship to live is Christ, Paul said. Christ is our life, Colossians 3 says. Harold Honer, who's been my most faithful guide through the book of Ephesians as a commentator, says, believers continually learn Christ who is alive and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies. The new person's ordered life is not connected with learning the law, but rather learning about his learning, uh, learning about Christ, and thus learning the living Christ and ordering his or her life to please him. You understand that to learn Christ actually implies and, and assumes the resurrection. He is alive and relatable. He invites us into a living, vital relationship with Him. Look at verse 21. He talks about these, this personal engagement, what it means. It, he says, if, if indeed you have heard Him, it's an interesting comment. It's unlikely any of the Ephesians had ever been in the Lord's presence and heard Him Personally and privately. So to hear, they had heard Christ. How did they hear Christ? They heard the teaching, the apostolic teaching about Christ. How do we hear Christ today? In his word. That's where we have the apostolic teaching. The assumption was that hearing accurately about him was actually hearing him personally. And been taught, verse 21, in him that phrase it speaks to how the Ephesians had grown in their faith by learning and maturing in their theology as it coalesced around Jesus. In him, as you know, is a favorite phrase of Paul. It means in fellowship with him. 11, Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you. You know what yoke is? We use the phrase a lot, but it's, it's actually a pretty simple uh, picture. A yoke was if you had two cattle, two animals, there was a piece of wood with, with an, uh, an arc cut in, in, in uh, each side of it and that, that was laying on the back to get them to, to, to labor together, which is why I say, Paul talks about don't be unequally yoked. Don't put a cow and a chihuahua together to try to pull a, a cart. You're, you're going to have trouble. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And look at the integrating centrality of Christ in salvation, just as truth is in Jesus. We often do this as Christians when we speak of the truth What do I mean by that? We can make truth an abstraction rather than a person. We can easily talk about, oh, I love the truth. But what does he say here? Truth is in Jesus. It's actually a person. 
The truth understood and defined by Paul is what we know to be true in and from the Lord himself. So let's back up a little bit and kind of tie it to what we're, we're talking about today. It's not reasonable for me to say, I like you, but I don't want anything to do with your wife. Because the integrating centrality of our faith is that the church is the bride of Christ in, in a one flesh, unity, solidarity relationship with the Lord himself, which is where he's going to go in chapter 5. You know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, follow your husbands as the church follows Christ. You cannot... I think, let me just, let me just be personal with you. I'm, I'm struck by how easy it is. That's, that's too lightweight. I'm struck by how susceptible I am to Satan's lies that make me think to be around church is to love the church. To go to church is to define the church. I mean, I, I say it every week. We're going to church on Sunday. You don't go to church. You are the church. This is, this is such a lie of the devil to think that church is in session when the doors are open and the services are going. No. The church is the relationships that we share with each other as blood-bought men and women, children of Christ himself. It's, it's the connective tissues of our relationships. And you know this. I mean, John 13, Jesus said, They, the world, the world will know that you love me, not when you love each other. I mean, not when you love the world, but it's when you love each other. The big test for our love is not loving the world, it's loving each other. The world, unbelievers should come into our churches to say, wow, those people love each other. That's the signature of Christianity. And you know what God does to make that happen? Can, can we just be honest? He brings people into your church who are not very lovable. And that's the test. Because during Paul's day in Ephesus, you had Jews and Gentiles who had different languages, different diets, different way they dressed, different fellowship, different meal times, different holidays, different everything, and they hated each other for not having what they had. And God says, okay, I'm going to put you guys all together in the same church, in the same pews. Now get along and love each other. You, you know he's still doing that, right? You know that person, can we just be painfully practical? You know that person who you see on Sunday, who you think wants to talk to you, and they're walking across the foyer and you're going, no, 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 hi. What do you think God's doing? He is glorified when the the, when people who would not have anything to be unified about except Christ are unified because of Christ. You cannot understand the church 
unless you understand its head, the Lord Jesus. I will build my church, Jesus said. So, today is a great test for all of us to say, how are we doing in our understanding of church, our commitment to church, not the services, but the relationships? How am I serving? How am I sacrificing? What's my relationship to the bride of Christ? Revelation says, Jesus' wife. Behold, the wife of the Lamb, and here comes the church. Wow. The simple point is that Christianity and its curriculum is about the person of Christ. And if you love and know him, you will love and know his bride. Those go hand in glove. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is Christ. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I've been crucified with Christ to the Galatians. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but would live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So we have to ask a question today. What are we doing to understand and better be involved in the church? But that is a second question to what we have to answer is what are we doing to better know and be involved with Christ himself? Because just as Paul says, quoting Genesis, the husband and wife are one flesh. The two become one. That analogy is used in reference to the solidarity and unity of Christ and the church. You cannot have Christ without his church. And we better not pursue the church without pursuing Christ. And I guarantee you, the enemy of our soul would love for us to have church be anything about anything and everything except our Lord himself. So let's kind of gather our affections, our intentions, our inclinations, our fellowship with each other, and lean hard into understanding the bride and the bridegroom. They come together. We should never pursue one without the other. I remember reading... But you did not learn Christ in this way and having that aha moment like, when did, the, when did that come in the Bible? I've never seen that before. Are you learning Christ? Oh, Paul said, oh, oh, that I may know systematic theology. <laughs> what did he say? That I may know him, his life, his death, his resurrection. Because when you do that, you don't just get Jesus, you get his bride. You don't just get Rick, you get Rick and Kim. Jesus will not be received without bringing his bride with him. That's our motivation for understanding and involvement in church. 
Father, give us motivation and insight today as we study, as we hear about your bride. Never separating her from your son. Never seeing your son without her. Just as close in solidarity and unity as that one flesh relationship between a husband and wife, so have you defined your son and the church. Encourage us, motivate us, change us, inspire us today with better understanding and better application. Lord, please help us to be those who would apply the truth, not just appreciate it. Not just agree with it, but to do something about it. For your glory, we want to pray and change, and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.